All right, everybody, welcome back to the Millennial Sales Podcast. Your host, Tommy Tahoe Alemo. This is a show where young salespeople come to learn, develop, grow, get to the next stage of their career. Um, stoked. It's Monday. It is May 30th. It's actually Memorial Day. So shout out to um, everyone that serves this country, has served this country, given their life for this country uh, in America. Um, for those that are outside America, um, happy normal Monday to you. Uh, excited for today's episode. We've got a little bit of a switch up doing an interview for this Monday. Sometimes we do different types of stuff. Um, but for today, we've got Nate Nisrala. Nate is the founder of Fluent. Uh, before that, he was you know, running uh, sales and, and partnerships teams uh, at, at multiple different companies. And we take a step back from, you know, more of like the, the chronological journey of someone's career. And we go really deep into enterprise sales um, because there's a lot of folks that listen to the show that talk about, you know, hey, I, I don't want to get into leadership, at least maybe not right now. I want to close the big deals. I want to close the enterprise deals. And it's a completely different skill set that you need to close a million dollar deal than it is to close a $10,000 deal. Um, and so Nate, goes really deep on that topic with us uh, based on a playbook that he wrote, uh, which is publicly available. It's free, so you can check that out as well. Um, but without further ado, let's get straight into my conversation um, with Nate Nisrala. All right, next on the Millennial Sales Podcast, we got Nate Nisrala. Nate, what's happening, my man? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tom. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm uh, excited to have you on. We were just joking about how in the world of, I guess, the internet, but for, for me, it's typically LinkedIn, where uh, you see someone's face a lot, at, whether it's on comments or likes or DMs, and then all of a sudden you're meeting on Zoom, like you feel like you know someone and, um, and, and you haven't met. So I'm excited to actually meet you uh, and get into a great topic with you today. Yeah, likewise. It is, it is a funny thing. I feel like I know so many more people in, you know, I haven't had a conversation, let alone like been in person with them. So it's uh, super fun to be talking with you. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so uh, the meat of what we're going to focus on here is going to be around um, enterprise sales and, you know, specifically kind of the playbook that, that you wrote around that and just helping reps to get there. But maybe we'll spend a few minutes before that, just getting to know you a little bit. I'd love to hear, obviously you're the founder um, of Fluent, but, you know, we're in a, sales and sales leadership role in, in a bunch of different companies throughout that. So I'd love to just hear like, you know, how has that transition been from being a, a seller, being a sales leader to actually founding a company? I'm sure there's a lot of folks on the line here that have entrepreneurial dreams. So I'd love to hear that. Yeah. You know, my, my story into sales is a little funny. Like some people start in sales, then they build a startup. They kind of make the leap into entrepreneurship. I was kind of the opposite in that I started as a startup founder. So I built a company that did fundraising marketing for nonprofits. Mm. And I realized pretty quickly that like, if you want to build something and keep building it, you have to sell it and you have to, you know, start generating revenue. And so I kind of fell into building our first sales team. And in the process, I just, I fell in love with the art of sales because it's mm. like this license for curiosity. And as a builder and kind of creating products, man, it was the best way to think about how to build a product was to be talking to customers all day long. And that's what sales is, especially as I started to go kind of deeper into more of the science and some of the disciplines around sales, I just fell in love with it. So after that company uh, was bought, built and, sale, and scaled that sales team, that company was bought out. I built the first ever enterprise sales team inside of the company that bought us. 
And that's where I really started to go deep into um, developing enterprise deals myself, hiring on our first enterprise AEs, scaling up that process. So I, uh, I guess my starting point was a little backward. I started in startups, got into sales from there, um, and have loved both. And so now I, I just call Fluent like the perfect intersection of building a startup that is helping sales teams. Yeah, I love it. And um, what, what is the, is it just you or what does the team look like there? So I'm the only non-technical person at the moment. It's myself yeah. plus our dev. So I, uh, I've, I kind of wear everything non-technical and then I do a little bit of product design and things as well. Nice. So you're talking to customers probably a ton, right? Or, or prospects or just the general market to try to kind of understand what the, what the market looks like for you and like where to take the product. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's exactly how we've built the product. Everything that is in our product has come from a conversation with a seller. And I, I kind of believe like, if it comes from my own head, it's probably going to be wrong. Like we have to do what sales teams are asking us to do. And then the second thing that's been super fun about all these conversations is just figuring out what I would call like language market fit, the way to talk about what we're doing in the area that we're playing in. And it's, it's been helpful for everything that we do from our marketing website to the content that we're creating. So yes, a calendar full of, of conversations with sales teams. And like, man, that is like the lifeblood of everything that we're doing in the company. So was your, was the thought for the business and where you're going from an enterprise sales standpoint, did that come from a pain point that you experienced mm -hmm. as a sales leader? Yeah. From a pain point that I experienced and then just kind of watching and looking at ways that the highest performing reps were hacking their own process. Mm. So what I mean by that is like the frustration and the reason why we would lose deals is oftentimes we wouldn't be in the room for the really important make or break moments. It was inside of an internal meeting when the buyer or the champion, they were delivering the message for us. They were using their own words to describe the product, what they loved about it. They were handling objections, questions, and I, it was kind of this moment of realizing like, oh my gosh, like we have spent so much time on coaching, training for our reps, but we haven't really set up a process for our reps to coach and train their champions to sell with them when they're not around. And so when I would kind of go deeper into my own process, what I would see other reps doing, like the best ones were figuring out a way to hack together some type of Google doc. We had reps opening up their own Canva license all to try to create some type of material that would guide that champion's message. They would mm -hmm. personalize it, lay it out in a, a very specific, compelling you know, value story that people would resonate with. And those were the ones that were closing the highest value deals most consistently. And so it was like very interesting to watch, despite this huge tech stack, how they were kind of working the process to reposition themselves to start selling with their champions as opposed to selling to them, which in a complex deal, lots of different contacts, enterprise environment became pretty, pretty key. So um, anyway, Fluent just came out of that. Like it, I, I guess the saying is scratch your own itch. Um, yeah. Like wanting to scratch my own itch and seeing what uh, other reps were already trying to do that. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing uh, more frustrating as a seller when you know, you're, you're working a deal and, you know, you think it's going well. And then you, you get to what you think is the end, this last meeting that's like, Oh, I just got to talk to Bob, but like, don't worry, he'll be all good with it. And then two days later you get the email. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're not going to move forward or, or whatever it might be. Uh, or Bob wants a hundred thousand dollars off the price or whatever, whatever happened in that meeting that you were not a part of. And, um, 
I, I totally agree. I feel like the best salespeople that I've met, especially enterprise sellers, are able to somehow, some way, you know, kind of help, you know, you help your champion sell for you and with you. And you're on the same team um, versus, you know, it, it being a you versus them or, or whatever it may be. And you need to arm them with the right info and the right story or, or data or whatever it may be to, to actually make that case. Um, unfortunately, I feel like that's kind of life. Like most of the big decisions and just in other parts of your career happen when you're not in the room, you know, are you going to get promoted or are you going to get fired? Are you going to get that raise? Or are you not? You know, a lot of it, I feel like happens when you're not in the room. And so, um, you know, sales is just an aspect of that. Yeah. I mean, and that's the two parts of it. When I think about one, creating a champion and then two, enabling them, it's all about how to shape the key steps that are happening in the deal when, when you're not around. And the reason why I say create a champion in the first place is because you can get in the room, like you can earn a seat at that decision table. Multi-threading is, you know, kind of the, I guess the one word summary um, of what you're ultimately trying to do, but that only comes when there's like a sense of trust, when that champion is like, yes, Tom can help me. And there's teamwork of like, okay, I'm going to be better off because Tom can add something to this conversation that I can't do alone. Mm -hmm. um, transparency, like, Hey, I have nothing to hide in this meeting. So Tom, like, would you be up to join this conversation with me? And so it's kind of this two part thing of one, like naturally there will always be those moments to your point when you just can't be in the room. I um, mean, you see that outside of just working deals, like to your point in career conversations and things. So if you can't be in the room, are you enabling the champion with a clear message, with a compelling um, story to tell and a narrative to tell? Or two, part of creating a champion is sometimes like you can earn your way into that conversation and sit at the table as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, part of what we want to do here uh, for the audience is, is, you know, kind of switch things up from, you know, um, maybe the typical format. And, you know, and I'd love to do is get into, you wrote a, uh, an enterprise sales playbook, essentially, that's, that's kind of five parts. Um, I'd love to just kind of break down, you know, the, both the mentality and the skill set and then the tactics that are needed, because there's a lot of salespeople out here that are listening to this, that maybe are in commercial or, or mid-market roles, mm -hmm. that all they want to do is be an enterprise seller because, you know, they close the big deals. Um, those are the people that can make, you know, 500K, they can make a million plus dollars. I've, I've met several, you know, enterprise sellers that consistently have done that. Um, and, you know, they might want to go and, and close, you know, a $40 million deal with Bank of America. And it's a completely different skill set than what is going to make you successful in a transactional sale or even a, a mid-market sale. And so um, I just thought you did such a great job breaking this down. I'd love to um, kind of walk through this with you. Yeah, well, I would love to. I'm happy to dig into like part one, this kind of mental shift of what is the difference in just kind of positioning and thinking about your own job as a seller when you make this leap up into enterprise. So um, if we want to dig in there, happy to, happy to start there. Yeah. Let's, let's start with, with the mindset. Um, because I, I, I agree with you. I think that that should be part one, you know, the tactics can come afterwards, but you need to, um, and Ian Cognac, uh, who's a great enterprise, you know, seller and, and coach talks about this a lot, that the things that made you successful in, in one thing are not going to be the same things that make you successful at the next level. And so you kind of need to throw out some of the things that have worked in order to try new things. So I'd love for you to speak a little bit about just the different mindset you might need. Yeah. So I, I would capture the overall mindset shift is one of moving from selling to your buyers to selling with them in the moment that kind of crystallized or started this whole mindset, mindset shift for me 
Um, it sounds totally funny, but I was reading a shareholder letter from Amazon that Jeff Bezos wrote. And in it, he talks all about how Amazon in their leadership meetings, they don't do PowerPoints, they use memos. And his point is that the narrative structure of a memo leads to clear thinking. And so there are two like aha, like takeaways for me that play into this mindset shift. The first is that when you think about what creates and kills deals, where problems are discussed, their level of priority, debates that company leadership are having about those, it's all during an internal meeting. And the second thing is that if you want to begin to move up to a larger deal, the difference that you'll see is that it's rarely centered around a specific product. It's all problem-centric. Enterprise sellers spend an incredible amount of time thinking about framing the problem, finding the right problem, and building the narrative around that that's going to be shared around the entire company and rise up to a level of leadership priority of like, hey, this is a big deal. We need to think about that. And so the way that that plays into the mindset shift is what a good enterprise rep is really doing is they're thinking of themselves as like this enablement team of one. They're buyer enablement, essentially. And what they're doing is all of the things that like their sales enablement team is doing for them, helping them develop their messaging, training them. That's exactly what an enterprise rep is walking into a meeting with their buyer doing. They're enabling them to think differently about their problems setting up a conversation that's going to rise up to the level of the company leadership. So all of that in a phrase, you're shifting from selling to your buyers to selling with them. That's the, that's the major foundation on which all of the other tactics and things we can start to layer on. Mm. And, and within that, if you're thinking of kind of the right message and the right story, it's also making sure you have a big enough problem to solve that you're solving the most important problem possible. Um, and, so if you're if you're at the feature level of your product that hey here's this like cool thing you know we're we're like fast you can do something fast you know that that might get you a, a transactional sale you can mm -hmm. you know it's not ideal but you can um, but if you're going to try to sell you know million plus dollar deals it's got to be a million plus dollar problem that you're solving for the organization hopefully much more than that to to show the ROI. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll start to dovetail that because I totally agree into kind of the next piece of the playbook, which begins to go deeper into the role of a champion in developing an enterprise sale. And the thing about an enterprise sale that I'll kind of um, carry on that point with is that there's like a series of small closes that happen all throughout mm -hmm. the sales cycle. And the first is closing your champion. Like, do you have somebody with influence somebody with a personal incentive who is going to help shepherd the deal all the way through that longer sales cycle. And the, the thing that is kind of funny at first is that oftentimes the way that you close that champion can be more product centric. And there's usually something that is going on in their day that sucks. There's a problem, there's a pain that they hate. And they're like, this is awesome. You can help me do something about this. But to get to the next close, which is where you're working with the champion, to then rise up to the company level, because to your, your point, the company level problems are big. And if you don't have a message and a story at that point, it's going to be very tough to move from just getting a champion on your side to then helping the champion think about how do we get everybody else on the company bought in here? And that's where the framing begins to shift. So I'm happy to go a little deeper onto the problem, but that's kind of the next piece of this is there's usually a series of problems that you're digging into. And with that, you're beginning to kind of close in part different members of the buying circle 
starting with a champion who can then kick off and really bring in a number of different contacts into the whole process. You know, I feel like one, um, one issue that people can, that reps can get into is assuming someone's a champion when they're really, you know, maybe a, a coach or maybe just mm-hmm. a, a fan or, you know, however you might want to phrase it with the difference being a champion, someone that's going to actually go in with the, uh, some sort of influence, like you mentioned, or authority, uh, and sell this on your behalf internally. Whereas, you know, a coach or a fan might just be someone that, yeah, they like it. Um, if someone asked them about it, they'd say good things, but they don't have any sway internally. So, um, how would you, how would you coach on that? Would you, would you suggest like formalizing this more and say, Hey, Nate, like, seems like we're having a, you know, a great conversation. You know, it seems like you could really, you know, use what we're, what we're selling here because of A, B and C, like, you know, would I be able to consider you a, you know, kind of a champion in, in trying to kind of trying to move this forward? Is it, could you make it that formal? Yeah. So I would make it that formal. You wouldn't use the word of like, Hey, can I count on you to be my champion? Like that's, you know, it's, it's kind of going to fall flat, but there are different things that you can do to begin testing your champion to figure out, okay, is this somebody not only with incentive influence some information, but like, are they going to do something? And that's the thing that separates champions from coaches. In addition to influences that they're actually going to act on that. Like you don't become a champion until you start displaying certain behaviors where you're actually willing to commit to owning certain tasks, where you're challenging some of the current process, the way things are done. So there, there is a process for testing champions. And kind of the key thing is that when you are testing them, and I'll kind of go through some practices here, the goal is just to make sure that everything is framed around still a value add or way that you are helping that buyer. So here are are a couple of different ways that you could test and like figure out like, is this truly a committed champion? Um, So one, like you can flip roles and say like, hey, um, you mentioned that you have a leadership team meeting coming up on, you know, next Monday. And I'm curious, like, how would you describe our product to your team in that conversation? And then listen to the level of conviction. Um, How clear are they? Like, have they been cluing into the things in your conversation? And are they articulating that well? Um, The other thing that has been very helpful for me is beginning to change up the communication channel. Like when you begin to see a champion shooting you a quick text or even being like, hey, we'd love to open up a Slack channel with you. That way I can just shoot you some kind of quick notes. You'll begin to see like another level of trust and intimacy developing there. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing is uh, signing action items like, hey, could you track down this data for the POC that we're working on? Um, would you be interested in talking to a couple of customers and like hearing from their point of view and then looking to figure out like, are they actually following through on that? Are they asking for the data? Are they calling that reference? And again, all things that are, you know, value added. Um, so you want to make sure to frame it uh, correctly, but definitely there is a way to figure out if you have a committed champion. And I would put that all under the, I guess, pieces to a playbook of testing those champions. Mm. And, and what, what happens in the scenario where the champion just fails, you know, like you, you do test them, how would you sell this? And they, they completely miss the value prop, or maybe it's just an uninspired performance. Um, Mm -hmm. How would you, how would you respond to that? Uh, Yeah. I mean, it, it, it happens. Um, So there are two ways that I would go about um, thinking through that one, maybe they, they aren't a champion. And like the test cleared, you know, clearly showed that they failed and that's okay because that's just not their role, but there's another role that they can play. For example, it may be 
helping you to map out the rest of the buying team to figure out like what's in it for somebody else who may have not only a greater degree of influence, but they can actually articulate the value prop well. So it could be, hey, their role is just to help you identify, learn the rest of the buying team, get an internal introduction. You know, that's great. They, they, they still have a role that's a valuable conversation. On the flip side, the reality is that like as a sales rep, you go through coaching, training, you're thinking about honing your craft all week long. Mm-hmm. And buyers, you know, they're not going through the same type of training. What they do know is their internal goals, the language that their team uses. And this is a great moment for you to go. And this is why we talk through the mindset shift. First, when you think about what your sales enablement team does, now you think of yourself as an enablement team of one for your champion, like beautiful moment to either build out some materials to help them guide their message. So they don't have to lean into this like articulate, you know, slick presentation, or you just go through more coaching of like, Hey, one thing that I found is like, if we spend a little bit more time on the problem here, everybody's going to be a little bit more interested in like sharing tips. Um, so those are kind of two different ways that I might approach it, either looking for an in- internal introduction, their role isn't a champion or two, like, Hey, you get to, you get to play the role of coach, um, and help the champion. Yeah. And so, um, let's say you're selling to me. Mm-hmm. We had some great conversations. You got me bought in. We're texting, uh, yeah. you know, y- you feel confident that I've got the sway and the understanding and everything to, you know, make a compelling case. Uh, you know, to my, you know, CFO or whomever, um, what's the next step from there? So for me, what I'm always curious to know is the internal process that you're going to use in order to go to that champion. And I ask some kind of more specific questions like, you know, Hey, I'm curious. I'm, I'm, I found that some teams will use like an internal Google doc as like their way to develop an idea. Others, it's more conversational. It's like on a certain meeting, how are you going to go about that? And by asking some questions, you begin them to, you, you help your champion think through how to execute on that. Cause I mean, there are tons of closed loss deals filled with good intentions. Yeah. And so you want to begin to kind of um, dig into what that internal process looks like. And that's where I found like that idea of the Amazon memo is fascinating because if you can begin to camouflage your sales process to blend in with the internal decision-making flow or structure that that decision maker is already used to, then you can begin to figure out, okay, how can I be most helpful for this champion? It's like, great. You always send a Google doc in this format to your CFO two days before your meeting. Well, let's talk about it. What goes into that Google doc? Can we help develop it together? You know, and so then you start getting into more of an execution mindset. Mm. And it's also, you know, kind of mentally, like you said, mentally preparing them and they're almost visualizing like, how am I going to bring that to the CFO? Like, you know, um, and they're kind of visualizing, all right, well, I'm going to need to go here. I'm going to need to do the Google doc and I'll probably start there. And and maybe they didn't even think about what that process is before Mm -hmm. you kind of planted that in that, in their ear. Um, because otherwise it might be like, Oh shit, I have the meeting with the boss tomorrow. Let me just go like, you know, create something (laughs) really quickly, haphazardly, or just leave it off the agenda because it's less work that way. And we'll talk about, you know, whatever other things that I need to get done. And so by asking that, um, you know, hopefully you get into the spot where if it is a, a document or a presentation or something, you get to combine efforts and, and share mm-hmm. in that um, with, you know, hopefully 
the thought to them being, I can save you time. I can make this land better based on my experience. If you built up that trust, uh, it's not seen again as like you selling them. You're actually taking work off their plate and making them look good to whoever it is that they have to present this to, which is, you know, an obvious fear of like, I'm, I'm sticking my neck out for this product or this company, you know, and it doesn't go well, then I don't look good. So, you know, I want you to make me look as good as possible. Oh yeah. And one of the interview questions that I ask when hiring enterprise reps is tell me a time, tell me about a time when a buyer you were working with was promoted, like mm. what happened? And that's when it gets really fun because there are a whole series of stories of where I've ended up helping one of our buyers, like write their new job description. There's their CFO asked them, Hey, this is, this is big. It actually means that we're going to have to hire and staff up a new part of the business. I think that that means you would be in more of a, like a director style role. Could you help me think through what that job description looks like? Mm. And it was awesome. Cause I was able to reach out to a couple of customers, be like, Hey, would you mind sharing like an example of what your job description looks like or working with, you know, this prospect who is going to be staffing his team in a new way. And it's, it's a pretty fun thing. I mean, to your point, like talk about shifting away from the typical view of what a sales rep is. Like when you get to help somebody boost their own career, like that's a really, really fun thing. Um, there was one other quick side note that I wanted to make to your point on like how you begin to shift, like there's a new dynamic that comes mm-hmm. into talking with your buyer is you can sometimes start throwing objections at them. You're like, Hey, you know, if I'm your CEO, your CFO in that conversation, I might be asking like, why would we, you know, one, two or three, you know, you, I mean, you handle objections all day long. So you know, which ones you might want to prime them with. And that's also when it gets kind of fun. You get to throw objections at your buyers and be like, are you sure you really want to do this? You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And that, that gives them, gets you a pretty good understanding of how committed they are and, and how legit they are. If they can, if they can take the test of some of those, um, one of the parts you have in here that I want to get to, which no sales rep, self-respecting sales rep wants to do, but we all do it from time to time is the dreaded check-in email. Um, <laughs> and so let's say, you know, you said, Hey, I've got the, the big meeting next Thursday, you know, and today's Tuesday when I'm talking to you, and so we got nine days till the meeting and let's just say everything's all buttoned up. Like, how am I avoiding, you know, checking in before checking in the day of checking in the day after how'd it go, Nate? Like what's going on? Like, how do I, how do I continue to, you know, keep them engaged and keep them, um, you know, a good steady back and forth communication flow going, um, you know, if there's some time off uh, in that a scenario like that. Oh yeah. Well, I mean the, Basically, the, the premise of a checking in email is either one of two things. It's either one, you know, well, they must have forgot, so they just need a reminder. Or two, like, you know, naturally, you're just like very eager to figure out what's what's going on. So the way that I think about getting outside of the checking in email, there's kind of a series of like questions that I reflect on while putting together a follow-up email. So one is, am I introducing new information into the conversation? Because when you do, you begin to set up this like curiosity or this like very hopeful expectation of every time I hear from Tom, I discover something new. It's awesome. So whenever I see his name pop up in my inbox, I want to jump to it. So that's the first thing. Am I introducing new info or just rehashing what I've already said? Um, The second is I try to think about something that is immediate. What's on my prospects to-do list? What's already in their brain? And if I can write my follow-up in a way 
that speaks to that or helps them get that job done that is on the to-do list, the chances of getting a reply are much more positive. And notice that that means that the ask in a follow-up or a checking in email is rarely like, hey, did the CFO look at the proposal? Um, hey, here's my Calendly link, wondering if we can schedule a follow-up call. And so you're beginning to shift your ask to more of like, hey, can I get your feedback on this? I have an idea for you. Can I run this by you? Um, so that the ask or the whole goal of the email shifts entirely. Kind of um, a couple other quick kind of check marks that I run through in my mind. Um, I, I try to use their language as well. And I try to have it match what we talked about. And this is kind of related to this idea of like, if I could send that exact same email to anybody else in my pipeline, I know that it's a me-centered email. And in the moment where it sounds so unique to our conversation that it would be very weird or strange for somebody else to read this email, then I know I'm on the right track. Like, that's pretty good. Yeah. And then the, the last practice that I have here, also happy to go into other kind of like um, creative ideas. This one is just kind of focused on the email itself. But the other thing that I'm, I'm doing is I am um, writing really long. So I try to go over 200 words because it's, it's very hard to write something that is not value added um, when you're writing long. And then I kind of cut it back down to be very like sharp and to the point. So mm -hmm. again, it's if, if the whole goal of the email is just to say, hey, checking in, how did that conversation go? It's hard to get like 200, 300 words you know, out of that. So it forces right. you to kind of form a point of view, introduce new information and so on. So um, that's great. I, I love, and I'd, I'd love to underline the point of, and I think this could be said for just about any email one should send is that if it could go to anyone and it's not specific to who you're sending it to, um, and maybe you could say this, this doesn't apply for, for some prospecting emails, although I think it could for, for a lot, um, especially once you're in the sales cycle with someone, your whole point of, of doing the discovery and having these conversations is so that you can tailor the rest of the conversation to them and what their pain points are and, you know, how you align with that. And, and, you know, if they have specific terms that they use for their team, that is different than how you're, you know, they are in your slides, you change it to the, you know, how they phrase it. And so it's just very individualized and personalized that I think can make a big difference. So I wanted to underline that point to make sure it didn't get lost in the shuffle. Right on. Well, obviously I totally agree. And it's also a good footnote that you add there is we're talking pipeline as opposed to prospecting. You've already had a conversation, yeah. you know, something about the deal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm, the last piece of, of, uh, of the playbook here, and then I want to leave a few minutes to do some rapid fires with you, um, yeah. is around building a bulletproof business case. And I'd love to hear your take specifically around ROI. This is a debate that I've had on a lot of sales teams and I've talked, you know, I've heard multiple sides of it, but some people say, you know, there's a lot of like ROI calculators and stuff out there. Right. Um, and there's some people that say, yeah, you're just like, you know, that's great. It looks great on paper, 20 to one ROI. Sure. Um, and then there's some people that's like, wow, that's really compelling. You know, you took our data from, you know, what our time is for X, Y, Z. And, you know, you have some real examples of, of how you did that in a case study with similar companies and that's legit. And I'll sign off on that. And so I do feel like it has a polarizing effect on people, mm -hmm. um, depending on how they take that. But I'm just curious, like, is, is that included in your business case? Is it not? Um, would love to hear that. 
So it is, but it is way more problem centric than the typical approach to calculating ROI. And the reason why I say that is that when you think about what somebody is going to respond to and act on very quickly, it is one, something that is an active loss. Like you are losing out for every minute that you don't take action, as opposed to a lot of ROI starts with the opposite to say, hey, here's the potential gain that you could have if only you took action. And so I think the ROI calculation has to start up with the cost of a problem that you are like actively experiencing, number one. Mm -hmm. And then number two, it has to speak into the consequences of that at a company level. So earlier we were kind of talking about like, hey, if you want to do an enterprise deal, you have to rise all the way up to a leadership level. How do you do that? So when, when you would put this into like an example or a case study. So in the playbook, I, I use Drift, the marketing software is one example. And so in talking about ROI, you would first set it up by talking about the cost to say, hey, let's say 50,000 website visitors hit your blog every single month, only 1% are converting on your forms, but you could be doing more like two, two and a half percent. You are losing 500 demos for your sales team every single month. Like that's a big issue. So your ROI isn't framed of, hey, here's the potential for what you could be doing. It's like, yo, this is a big <laughs> issue. Yeah. And then when you kind of dovetail that into the consequences piece, let's say company leadership is thinking about and getting ready for their like series B, right? They're going out to do another fundraise. And obviously the valuation in a fundraise is all based on how efficiently you're growing, how fast you're growing in that growth rate. So when you're talking to somebody like on a marketing team, it may be all about forms and conversions, but up at the leadership level, the whole business case is framed around growth, investor expectations, dilution in the next round. And so the framing in that business case in the role of ROI is totally different. So there is definitely a role for ROI. I just, I think I have a different perspective in starting back at the problem and connecting it to a company level priority. That's when you really start to see ROI resonate. Mm, I love that. And, um, you know, that's, that's always, <laughs> that's always the first question that, that comes when I'm in a pipeline review with my director, uh, is always like, what is the, what is the quantifiable business pain that you're, that we're solving for? And if you don't have that, and if we don't have what, like the real kind of root issue is, then I don't even want to talk about the deal. It's not even a deal. Um, and so that, that resonates very strongly with me. Um, before we move to, uh, to the rapid fires, Nate, uh, I know we, we kind of skimmed the surface on uh, on a lot of stuff. There's a lot more in, in the playbook that we weren't able to get to, but any other thoughts or any other pieces that you want to make sure we touched on? You know, the, the last thing that I would just, um, I would say is mutual action plans are starting to kind of mm. become more popular. More and more teams are using them and it's great. Two quick thoughts that you will do really well as an enterprise seller. If you adjust your style of how to use the map, start to think like an executive roles, responsibilities, as opposed to tasks and timelines, like in the action plan, begin to think about not only in the buying process, but like when you start to put your prospect into the role of a customer, like who owns the rollout, the training um, is the, is the end date going past the point of a contract and into the point of value. And when you begin to do that, man, it, it is so much more helpful for the buyer. So don't make the maps stop at contract and begin to think about roles, responsibilities. And if somebody is marked as, hey, you're going to be leading training, but they're not in the sales process, that's a very natural way to say, hey, 
can we get, you know, Jenny or whomever into the sales process as well? Yeah. I love it. Um, they just, just dropping knowledge, uh, right now, <laughs> Nate, for everyone that's, uh, probably anyone that's in an enterprise sales, probably going back and saying, yeah, I skipped that step. Uh, I skipped that step. I need to go back and, and, uh, evaluate a few things on some deals. So I appreciate you, uh, you just is dropping absolute uh, knowledge on us as it relates to enterprise sales for that piece. Well, thanks for having me here. No doubt. Um, cool. So let's do a couple rapid fires. Let people know a little bit more about you. Um, we're huge learners on this podcast. Not sure if, if you're a reader or, or how much of a reader you may be, but would love to hear any books that uh, have you know impacted you as, as you know, a professional, uh, as a person. Um, any genre is, is fair game, but curious if anything stands out. Yeah, so I have a pretty um, eclectic taste in literature. I'm I'm yeah. kind of an intellectual, honestly. I'm more introverted by nature, and so I read a I'm a pretty wide genre. And then my mind is always thinking about like how do I take and apply this back to sales. Mm -hmm. So the uh, last two um, great books that I, I read and loved, one is called Think Again by Adam Grant, and it's all about yeah. rethinking long held or long standing assumptions and some of the bias that creeps in. Um, without you kind of even realizing that. So um, that's one, um, highly recommend it. The, uh, the second one is one called Decisive, kind of a similar um, parallel, but it's all about the decision-making process. And the author goes through this acronym called RAP about how to make really like time-tested, effective decisions in the midst of uncertainty. And man, if you read either of those, your mind will start spinning and be like, oh yeah, there are some takeaways for sales here. Love it. Um... How about any other podcasts you listen to, people you follow on LinkedIn, YouTube, I don't know, any other ways that you like to learn, you know, newsletters, anything like that, that, you know, you've been really into recently? Yeah. So my um, two recent favorites, one podcast that I've been digging is um, Love Selling, Hate Sales, with Josh Wagner. He, mm. uh, he's great. He, um, like you, has a super conversational style, um, really enjoy the conversations that he gets into. And then recently I've been um, following a guy named um, Nicholas Cole on LinkedIn, um, oh, yeah. he, he started writing and kind of has this group called category pirates. And I think there's so much to learn about writing and you can apply that to sales all day long. Think about some of what we just talked through around checking in emails, the framing around problems. If you follow him and kind of, um, go through his feed, you will be able to, to apply that to your sales process very effectively. Yeah. Uh, former podcast guest, Nicholas Cole from way back. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think writing and communi you know, communication, copywriting, all very undervalued skills uh, for salespeople. Um, Nate, what goes on in the headphones music-wise? Oh, man, it totally depends on my activity. So in the morning, <laughs> I start off with classical. I'm drinking my okay. coffee. I'm doing some reading, sitting very quietly to myself. Um, when I jump into my workout, like pretty hardcore hip-hop. And then as I start going through the day, um, lately... Um, so, uh, Melanie, um, she's the, uh, one of the founders at spec it. She put out this playlist. It's called the best playlist ever invented. That's okay. lately been my jam as I'm like cruising through some emails, working on some writing. So it's a little bit more like electronic trance. And then, um, some of my favorite concerts that I love going to are more like, um, kind of alternative rock. So I, uh, call it like a charcuterie board of yeah. playlists <laughs> is, is kind of my style. I love it. I love it. Um, all right. My last one for you, Nate, is who would you want to come next on the Millennial Sales Podcast? Oh, I um. Th so this is going to be kind of 
outside maybe the traditional. So I'll, I'll give you two here. Um, one, Adam Grant, he wrote that book, Think Oof. Again. That would be oh, a great man. one. That's He's hard to get nailed down. I know. That'd be a great one. I know. Well, you, all your listeners are hearing it now. The challenge for Tom, land Adam. Um, mm-hmm. Whatever I can do to help, I don't know. But that would be a pretty pretty sweet one. Um, and then the uh, the other one that uh, I think would be pretty cool, I'm going to go back to the uh, copywriting theme, Ray Edwards. I think he also has just a, a really interesting kind of take on writing effective copy that's designed for response. So um, I loved your point that it's a underrated skill oftentimes. And I, I think that would make for a pretty great episode too. Nice. I'll have to, uh, I don't know, Ray, I'll have to check him out. I mean, Adam Grant would be a, uh, would be an amazing <laughs> guest. That's he's been on my, on my dream list for a little while. Um, well, Nate, before we let you go, um, I know that, you know, there's a lot of exciting things going on at Fluent. First of all, I'd, I'd highly recommend everyone listening to go check you out, follow you, connect with you on LinkedIn, um, learn more about, you know, your journey and, and what you're sharing around this world. Um, but I know that, you know, we've been kind of referencing the enter- enterprise sales playbook that's out and about. So maybe you could talk about that for a second too. Yeah. So basically what I've been doing over the last month is compiling um, six months worth of research, all my sales experience into one long form playbook. So it took about 50 hours to write up, but it was a super fun project. Basically put down all of the guidance that we've been talking through, plus some templates, case studies, all into one long form piece. And then we published it on a web page um, that we're pushing live. And so if you are either an AE looking to level up and land your first enterprise deals um, or currently selling enterprise and you're looking to learn and maybe um, up your game a little bit, go check out the playbook. Awesome. Um, so everyone definitely check that out. We will link that uh, in the show notes for anyone that that wants to see it on uh, millennialmomentum.net. Uh, Nate, appreciate you coming on and um, and thanks for adding all the value and everyone go definitely check out everything that uh, Nate's sharing out there on LinkedIn. Thanks again, Tom. Really good to be with you. Thanks for checking out that episode. Start of the year. Let's kick some ass. Again, one of my goals for this show is to get as many subscribers uh, wherever you're listening here uh, on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, et cetera, subscribe, leave a review, and then hit me up on uh, LinkedIn, Tom Alemo, uh, or any of my other socials at Tommy Tahoe. Look forward to connecting with you there. Peace.